We're going to be in John 17. Uh, last week, I finished chapter 16, and then I, I jumped into chapter 17 a little bit. And we're going to jump back to the beginning of 17, and I'm going to reteach those five verses because uh, I really focused on one emphasis of that portion uh, last week as we were closing up, and not so much the other parts. And there's some amazing things we're going to learn from those first five verses of what Jesus prays for himself. And then we're going to take a look at the following verses, and we're going to look at Jesus' prayer for his disciples. Um, Leonard Ravenhill said that no man is greater than his prayer life. No man is greater than his prayer life. It's an interesting quote, and it's one that I think of often. And, and in that book, he writes all, basically a whole book about prayer and passion. And he, in there, says some amazing things. And one of the things about prayer is that it's something that you don't really get credit for, right? Um, it's something that you're encouraged to do in secret, and you're like in your closet, right? Like you go and pray and have a place away. So the only person who really knows what your prayer like, uh, your prayer life is like, is yourself and God, right? Um, and because of that, out of all the spiritual practices, um, prayer is the one that we don't really know how good others are at it, because it's not about how well you verbalize your prayer in a community group. Prayer is a lifestyle of. Of, of seeking out the Lord and, and worshiping him, thank, giving him thanks, confessing to him, asking him for things. It's, it's something that should be through, like, you know, Paul says pray without ceasing. So it's not about how good you are with words in a group setting. That's not, that's not what Leonard Ravenhill is talking about when he's talking about being uh, great at prayer. It's about having a life that is just in close connection to God. Um, and so we're going to look here at Jesus' prayer um, in chapter 17. Um, we're gonna, it's one long prayer in chapter 17. We're going to look at the first two parts. And in this prayer, he prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, and then he prays for all believers. Um, we'll look at the all believers part next week. But there's some amazing things we can look at. Now, if we're going to... Look at someone's life and really see who they are. You can, you can certainly see in how they pray. And so I think it's really cool that we get to see Jesus' prayer here. We get to see his heart, his motives, his desires, his passion in this chapter. So he prays for himself in these first five verses. And, you know, if you look at the, the verses and the amount that he prays, Jesus prays for himself first. And then he prays for others. So one thing that sometimes I think people feel is that it's a little bit selfish to pray for yourself. Has anybody maybe thought that or heard anybody say that or anything like that? Do you ever feel like, oh, I pray too much for myself, right? So here's a good way of looking at it. Jesus prays for himself first, so there's nothing wrong with that, okay? Then he prays for his disciples, and then he prays for the whole church. Um, but only 20% of his prayers for himself. 80% is for others. I think that's a good way to look at it, honestly. I think if you could maybe pray for yourself, you know, get some things between you and God right, and then learn to pray maybe another 80% for others, for the, your, your closest friends, for your family, for your church, for Christians um, around the world, for the world even, I think is a good um, principle if you're looking for a, a measurement. If you, if you wanted to put prayer on a pie chart, because I know you guys were dying to do that. Uh, that would maybe be a good place to start, okay? Um, that was a joke. 
<laughs> like it did not land. The whole, you guys don't like pie chart jokes or prayer jokes, apparently. Note noted. Raven Hill. Uh, no man is greater than his prayer life. So, last week when I I touched on these first five verses, I really talked about how Jesus was saying that that work of discipleship was was done. Like he has discipled his guys all the way up to the edge of the garden here. And he's, he's talking to him, and that last thing he had shared with him is that, you know, really, the Father loves you dearly. And then he turns from his disciples. And I think it's, it's really important that we see the significance of this, because he's saying, hey, the Father loves you dearly. He turns from his disciples, he prays to the Father, and he says, my work with them is, is now done. I'm trusting them to you, uh, Father. And then he begins to pray for himself. So there's this, we're at this transition point in the ministry of Jesus. Let's look at it again. I believe we're going to see seven things um, that we're going to learn about Jesus' prayer. When Jesus had spoken, the, I'm reading out of the ESV today, if, if you care to know. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him all authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus here is praying for glory, um, specifically the glory that they had before the world existed. I, I, maybe it's not the best thing for us to pray for, for glory, right? <laughs> uh, but Jesus here is, he is God in flesh. <laughs> he has lived a humble three and a half years, or really you could say 30 years. He's been humbled. He's lived a poor man's life. He has served others. He has washed feet. And he's about to even do something even more humiliating, which is take on all of the sin of the world, right? He's lived this humble life. He's going to be spit on. He's going to be beaten. Uh, he's going to be, uh, you know, made fun of. And in all of this, Jesus is like, glorify me so I can glorify now, Jesus' heart here is ultimately the glory of the Father. So when we're praying for things in our life, we need to learn not just to pray for our own glory, but a glory. Uh, if you're praying for success, pray for a success that is going to bring glory to the Father in heaven. Right? There's nothing wa wrong with wanting to have success. There's nothing wrong for wanting to accomplish great things. But why are you doing it? Is it for your own glory? Or are we going to learn from Jesus here that even in the moment where Jesus is going to receive all glory, it's ultimately, he's saying, so you can be glorified, Father, in heaven. And that's a good principle for us. So if you're going to pray for, for things you want, why are you praying for them? Are you praying for them for just you? Or are you praying for them because you think this thing will ultimately give God glory? I think we should learn how to pray like that. Instead of like Nacho Libre, I just want a taste of the glory. <laughs> did you prepare that? I did. It's in your notes. It's not in my notes, but I prepared it. <laughs> okay. So, I see seven motives here in Jesus' prayer. 
seven things he's praying about. Number one, the glory of the Father. Number two, the glory of Jesus. Number three, he's praying for perfect timing. He's praying for a finished work. He's praying for eternal life for the believers. He's praying for the presence of God. And finally, he's praying for the restoration of how things should be. This is a powerful five verses. You know, the glory of the Father, the glory of Jesus, perfect timing, finished work, eternal life, presence of God, restoration of all things. I don't think there's ever been a more concise, beautifully delivered five verses, five, five statements here, right, of, of, uh, of prayer ever. It's a perfect prayer for um, Jesus to pray for himself. It's a perfect prayer for us to learn from. Can we pray for those kind of things now? Are we praying for our timing or God's timing? Like, that's one that I struggle with, right? <laughs> I struggle with that one. Are we praying for how we, think we want things or how things should be, right? That's a different kind of prayer. And are we praying for our own glory or for the glory of Jesus, the glory of Father? You know, there's something to learn from, from those seven motives that Jesus is praying for. And then Jesus now, he's going to switch from praying for himself, and he's going to now move to praying for his disciples. And we're going to break this down. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So he's praying specifically for his 11 disciples. Remember, Judas has left to go and betray Jesus, and we will see that Judas does betray Jesus. But he's praying specifically for these 11 disciples. And he's telling us as the readers here something that John has been communicating through, really throughout the whole gospel. He begins the gospel of John in John chapter 1, telling us that Jesus is the manifestation of God. And Jesus here is, is in his prayer saying, I have manifested your name. Jesus is the perfect manifestation of God's character, of his attributes, of his love. Name means something, uh, means a lot in the Bible. Um, you know, I think it meant more in American culture than it maybe does now. Like, it's, it's changed. Um, it used to mean more. Uh, it, it used to, like, having a good name, I don't mean, like, you know, versus, like, a John or, or, or what's another common name? I'm trying to think. <laughs> Mark, right? So I'm not talking about how, like, John might be a better name than Mark. I don't actually think that. I'm just saying. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about how your name, your reputation, when people say your name and think of you, they think of something good. That used to mean more in our culture than I think it does now. And in the Bible, your name meant a lot. Um, the meaning of your name, they were thoughtful behind the meaning of the name most of the time. But also just the name that you carried, uh, how you carried yourself, what you were known for, your reputation is really important in the Bible. 
And Jesus is saying here, it's, it's interesting because he's not just saying that I manifested your character or, or your attributes. Um, I manifested your name because the name of God means something. It's important. And Jesus perfectly manifested, manifested the name of God. And he then talks about here that we are a gift, right? So the people that God gave him out of the world. He says, yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So this is just crazy, you guys. We are God's gift to God. <laughs> Think about that. Within the Trinity, we are God's gift to God. Now, I don't know, maybe you struggle with seeing um, yourself with a, a lot of self-worth or a value. But just remember that God gifted you to himself. <laughs> like, he's like, here you go. Here's the people, right? So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I want you to know that you are the father's gift to the son. And then we're going to see the son's gift to the father. That's pretty cool. No. We don't give bad gifts generally. Like, unless you're a psychopath, like, you don't put a bad gift in somebody's birthday present, right? Have you ever done that? Okay, white elephant. That is a weird thing we do. <laughs> Alan once had a white elephant, gave me a mouse. I think I got the mouse and I traded it. Yeah. You're like, stop shaking it. <laughs> Dude, stop shaking it. I was like, why? <laughs> I didn't know it was a mouse yet. I wasn't shaking it. Because I knew it was a mouse. Uh, <laughs> but in general, like when we're giving somebody a gift, we're giving them a good thing. Something of value. Something of importance. Something we think they'll like. So know that you are God's gift to God. You have value. You're something of importance. You're something that God likes. That's hard to believe a little bit, right? We struggle with, with some of that, right? But that is the truth. Actually, Jesus in the gospel says that the Father in heaven does not give bad gifts. He doesn't give bad gifts. He's not a psychopath like Alan. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Dude, don't, don't sit there. I'll have to make money. Uh, right? He is saying here that we are a good gift. Disciples of Jesus, we are a good gift from God to God. I can't stress that enough right now. That you see yourself as important, as of value to God. I think that's pretty cool. Then Jesus also here is stressing that we know that all things come from the Father. All things. Like we, we came from the Father. Um, obviously, everything that was created by the Creator came from Him. But to know that all things come from the Father is, is an interesting way of looking at your life. Not just as a principle of, of creation, right, and understanding that God created all things, but looking at your own life and starting to say, that came from the Father, that came from the Father, that came from the Father, that came from the Father. None of this is mine. All things came from the Father. All of this is a, is a gift from the Father. All of this came from Him. I think we would start holding the things that we think are valuable or important a little bit more loosely and saying, man, all this is just his. It's not my money. It's not my house. It's not my car. We talk about possessions. Even harder, it's not my wife. It's not my kids. They're ultimately God's children, right? 
He loves them more than I do. He cares for them more than I do. I can trust him in that. And though there's a little bit of a, of a difficulty sometimes in, in, in letting go of that control, when we do, what we're actually finding is that we're learning how to trust God, right? So, you know, I, 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 sometimes I hear about, like, other kids who get really sick or somebody who loses a kid or something, and I, like, I haven't experienced that, but just the thought of it is so, like, rough to me, right? Or I guess most of the night we did have a, a miscarriage. That, that was rough, and I can't imagine if you're, you know, you're losing a, a 5-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 20-year-old kid, like, how difficult that must be. And I, I sometimes I, I, I think about that too much, and I have to remind myself, Lord, I dedicated this child to you. Like, you gave it to me, and I gave it back to you, right? Like, this is ultimately your child. And I think we learn, when we, when, when we learn that all things come from the Father, we, in that, can release some control, and then find, instead of control, instead of anxiety, we find trust. Um, now, I, I, I haven't been in some of the hardest situations that others have. So I'm talking, some of this is theoretical for me, and I, and I hope to have that kind of trust if anything so awful were to happen in my life. Um, but I, I think we would do ourselves well to preemptively learn to turn everything over to God and trust him instead of having a tight control uh, or a tight holding onto the things that we think are ours. We also see in this passage that Jesus is a gift to us. He's this most important gift. Like if everything came from the Father, the one thing that came from the Father that's most important was when Jesus came to the world for us. Like that is the most important gift. Um, I think it's beautiful to think on that. Jesus is the greatest gift that you'll ever get. Jesus is. Do we value him that way? Do we see him that way as the most important gift that we were ever given was this ability to have a relationship with Jesus? The fact that Jesus died for our sins and rose again so we could have newness of life, that's the most important gift. Let's continue to read here and see what else uh, Jesus prays for his disciples. Verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So Jesus here at the front, he says, I'm not praying for the world. He's not saying don't pray for the world. He's saying specifically here at this moment, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those disciples that you gave me, those specific men that have been following me, those specific men that you entrusted to me. I'm not praying for the whole world. Right now I'm praying for them. I'm focusing in on them. Sometimes I think God might give you specific people to pray for. Like it's always good to pray for the whole world. It's always good to pray for strangers if you think of it. You see someone on the street. But sometimes God might put a few people on your heart. And if they're on your heart, 
in prayer, it's for a reason. God wants you to be praying specifically for that. And it's okay to pray a lot for them, maybe more than anybody else or anything else. If God's putting people on your heart, pray for them. Jesus here is praying specifically for these these men who were close to him, these men who had a special role in church history, had a special relationship with Jesus as the 12, the 11 here that are left that got to actually follow him and live with him for this period of time. Jesus has a special place in his heart for them. He's praying special prayers for them. And it's okay for you to have some people that you're like, man, something in my heart just says, I really need to pray for you in a special way, in a specific way. So pray, ask the Father, who, who are these people that I should be praying for like that? And I think he will reveal to you, he may have already revealed to you, because maybe you often think of, man, I wish they would get this, or I wish they would understand that. That probably means that you need to be praying for them, right? Like if you're seeing things that you're just like, I don't, they just don't get this, I don't get that. You can't argue them into it, it's better to pray them into it, right? Um, the Lord may have already revealed some of the people that he wants you to be praying for um, in a special way. Then Jesus, again, he really talks about that the Father had given these disciples to him. And it's like this specific ownership, uh, a specific love, a specific purpose. And, and even com- like very clearly in the text, compared to the whole world. Like, we are to love the whole world, and God certainly loves the whole world. But then again, like, we look at different passages, such as Galatians 6.10, Paul says this. So then we are, sorry, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Oh, we're supposed to love our enemies. We're supposed to love the world. But Paul's saying, do good to everyone but specifically and especially to those who are Christians. And I would say also specifically and especially to those you're in community with, right? Do good to everyone, yes. But don't mess up your priorities. Those who God has given you to be close to, to be around, to be doing life with, to have community with, love those people especially. Do good to those people especially. Give them some priority. That's actually a biblical principle we see here. Jesus is doing it in his prayer life. Um, Paul tells us to do good, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. Then we see this verse here uh, where Jesus is talking about how he has guarded us, he has protected us, he has kept us. That's comforting. Um, For these disciples, he kept them close. He protects his disciples. He protects his followers. He keeps them. We should take comfort in that. Then it says the only one of the disciples um, that he lost was the son of destruction or the son of perdition. Um, the only other person who is given that title in scripture is the Antichrist later. The son of perdition, the son of destruction. Judas, the betrayer. Um, some people think that like the Antichrist will somehow be a resurrection of Judas. I think he will be in the sense that he's going to be close to the Christian faith. I think he's going to come out of the Christian faith. And I think that the Antichrist um, will ultimately like Judas, though not physically him in any sort of weird resurrection way, because we don't see that in Scripture, even though some people kind of believe that. 
because they share the name. I think they're going to be like in the closeness that they had to Christianity, maybe even to, to Jesus, but then betray it all, right? So Judas goes from one of the closest people to Jesus to the betrayer of Jesus, the one who is now this hard-lined enemy against Jesus, ultimately killing him, right? So I believe that the Antichrist, you know, from what we read, I think he will come from what will appear to be from the Christian faith, maybe, and then he's going to ultimately attack and be killing Christians. We could totally get into end-time stuff, but I'm just barely touching on it here. Um, but this was prophesied. Um, like Jesus wasn't surprised that Judas betrayed him. God wasn't surprised by it. In fact, it was prophesied hundreds of years beforehand. Um, God isn't ever surprised by anything, even his enemies, even those who attack him. God is never surprised. He's prepared for all of it. There's a question here about when it says that I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. Uh, some people want to jump there and say, okay, can we lose our salvation or not? Was Judas a Christian who lost his salvation? Um, with Judas specifically, he definitely was never a believer because I think it was in, uh, it's not in my notes, I think it was in John 6 that talks about him never having any one of them. He was never truly one of them. Uh, then you have the debate in general, can people lose their salvation or not? And smarter than me, men than me have tried to answer that question for a long time and debated it. Uh, and so I'm not going to try to tackle that. But I, I believe that if you just stick with Jesus, you got nothing to worry about. Like, why, why are we so worried about whether or not you can, are you planning on leaving Jesus? <laughs> like, like, why are you so worried? Are you planning on saying, I hate you, Jesus, and running the other direction? Or if you're planning on doing that, then maybe you have something to, uh, to worry about, not whether or not you can lose your salvation, just about why does your heart even feel that way? <laughs> you know? Like, if you're not planning on leaving Jesus, then you're either holding on fast, or Jesus is holding on fast to you. The Bible says both. <laughs> it says that he guards you and protects you. It also says that you need to hold on to him. So why are you worrying about it? If that's your intent, then you've got nothing to worry about. So whether or not it's that you left Jesus um, or that you were never really a Christian, either way, why are you thinking about leaving Jesus? <laughs> that's the real problem, right? Uh, so if you're not planning on leaving Jesus, let me just say it again, you have nothing to worry about. Just don't leave Jesus. I think that's the simplest way of putting it. I know it's not the most theological, um, but like I said, I don't. A lot smarter than, than me have tried to tackle that for about 500 years specifically, um, and I'm not going to do it today. Verse 13. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in, your, in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified 
in truth. This passage has a lot of amazing things in it. The first was that Jesus says that his joy would be fulfilled in themselves. Like Jesus' full joy can be fulfilled in your life. Think about that. Like we talk about being fulfilled. We talk about having joy. Jesus says my joy in my disciples can be fulfilled in them. That's pretty amazing. Like fulfilled, not like partial, like not a half cup kind of full. He's talking about being fulfilled in the love, the, the, the joy of Jesus. That's pretty amazing. And then specifically in here, he says, then, because I've given them the word and the truth. And then what's crazy is, so Jesus gives us joy. He gives us word. He gives us truth. And then that results in the world hating us. And so you think, okay, the world hates us, so Jesus had just said he's going to guard us and protect us, so maybe Jesus is going to take us out of the world. That would seem logical, right? That would be a logical train of thought. And he wants us to be, have joy, right? He wants to guard us. He wants to protect us. But he doesn't do that. He's like, I'm not going to take them out of the world. I'm going out of the world, but I'm going to send them into the world. That's pretty crazy. So the opposite of what might be the logical train of thought, if you're going to guard and protect us and you want us to have joy and the word and truth, maybe you'll take us out with you. And Jesus is like, no, I'm not actually going to do that. I'm going to send you right back into the world that hates you. What does he pray for them? He says, I pray that you protect them, not from the world, but from the evil one. And then Jesus says... I'm going to sanctify them in truth. Sanctified is an interesting word. In the Old Testament, it meant taking like this cup. For this to be a sanctified cup, or maybe the Old Testament word with the same meaning as consecrate, uh, it would have to only be used for like spiritual purposes. So to make it consecrated, or to sanctify it, would to be, so I'm going to take this cup, and from now on, this is only a cup for spiritual purposes. It can't be used for anything else. That's what it meant to be sanctified. And in the New Testament, we don't really see uh, the sanctification of items anymore. We don't really see that in the New Testament. What we see is the sanctification of people, more specifically and more commonly. You do see the sanctification of people in the Old Testament as well. God talks a lot about that. Um, But in the New Testament, it's less about items and more about your life. So when Jesus is saying, I'm sanctifying them in truth, Jesus is saying, I'm consecrating myself so I can sanctify them. It means Jesus wants to take your life. And in the truth of the word, the truth of Jesus, the truth of the Father, sanctify you for only his purposes. Like, it's a 100% sort of thing. It's a 100% sort of thing. It's looking at your life as every single part of it is for God's glory. Every single part of it is for worshiping the Father in heaven. That's what it means to be sanctified. Now, we also see in the New Testament that sanctification is a bit of a process. We're encouraged to be holy like he is holy. To sanctify ourselves, to set ourselves apart. But it also talks about Jesus setting us apart and sanctifying us. Uh, So Jesus has begun this work in our lives of sanctifying us. And we participate in it day to day by making decisions that are in line with the work he is doing of setting us apart, making us holy. 
making us like him. Jesus is doing a work like that, and we are in the process obeying, um, giving in, right? Repenting, uh, changing our mind about how we see things, how we view things, changing our actions, changing how we react to other people, all of it, right? This whole process of becoming more and more like Jesus for his glory to worship him, that's sanctification. Are you being sanctified in truth? Are you participating in it? I think each one of us have things that we know God is trying to work on us right now. And it feels a little bit different than just like, I'm going to try to be better. Because it's like when you're like, I don't really want to be better right now. But like God is like, you can feel him going, hey, 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 we need to work on this. Hey, you know the truth here. You know what's right here. And is that battle, right? So for you to submit, to, to give in here and say, Lord, yes, sanctify me. I'm, I'm setting this apart. I'm moving away. I'm repenting. Whatever the thing is in your life. You, you probably have a few of them right now that God is actively kind of poking at you, right? Because this is where you need to give in. This is where you're, where you're really still struggling. Part of sanctification is participating in it. And not just foolishly saying, well, in heaven all things will be made right, so I don't need to worry about that right now. The Bible tells us not to think that way, but to instead participate in sanctification. So seven things Jesus prays for his disciples. This is probably an over-summarization, uh, mostly because I wanted it to fit in seven, because <laughs> I like the number seven, and it fit with my previous seven. So it's a little bit of an over-summarization, but it's, it's, it's still true, Okay. Jesus prays for his disciples to have the joy of Jesus. Jesus wants you to have his joy, number one. Number two, he wants you to have the word and to know and have truth. Okay? Like you have a close relationship with what is true. And you get that from having a close relationship with the word. So that's number two. Word of truth. Three that we would glorify Jesus. As disciples, Jesus wants us to glorify him, to represent his name well. He has given us, like think about what we call ourselves, Christians. The first part is Christ. Christian means a little Christ. Like we are carrying his name when we say that we're a Christian. We shouldn't take that lightly. So we need to glorify Jesus, carry his name well. Number four, he's going to keep and guard us. That's what he's praying for his disciples. That is, should we take comfort in that? Because there are days where, you know, our heart can be an evil thing. Um, but Jesus is going to keep and protect us. Number five, he prays that don't take them out of the world, but send them in. Right? So that's what he's praying for us. He does not want us to escape from the world right now. If you are breathing, if your heart is pumping, it's because God is actively sending you into the world right now as a Christian. 
Like, that's how you need to view it. If you're not dead yet, you are being sent. As a Christian, you are either dead and with him or alive and actively being sent into the world as his representative, as one who carries his name, as one who's supposed to be giving him glory. Everywhere you're going as you're breathing and have blood pumping through you is supposed to be for the purpose of being sent into the world for mission. Mission is not optional. If you're going to carry the name of Jesus, you are to be on mission. You are to be sent in. Not optional. And then number six, he doesn't protect us from the world, but he prays for our protection from the evil one. Right? So you think of martyrs for Christ. They were not protected from the world. But their souls, their spirit, their hearts were protected from the evil one. So the world can kill you, but Jesus' prayers are effective in keeping you from Satan, keeping you from evil, keeping you from the desire of Satan, which is to pull you away from Jesus. So he prays for protection over you. Jesus does. He prays that, no, you're not going to always be protected from the world. We could all drive our cars today, get in a car wreck, and die, or things in this world could change and suddenly we find ourselves under persecution as many Christians across the world do. We are not protected from the world, but we are protected from Satan when we're in Jesus. Amen? So then finally, number seven, that they would be sanctified in truth. That's what he prays, these seven things for his disciples. So when I look at the seven things that Jesus prays for himself and I look at the seven things um, that Jesus prays for his disciples, um, we can learn a lot about Jesus' desire for us. And I think we should also learn how to pray. This is Jesus' big moment here. This is his big prayer at the end of the discipleship work. This is his final prayer over, over what he's taught these men. Reread this passage when you have some time and say does my prayer life look anything like this is this how I pray for myself is this how I pray for others because we do pray it um, a lot oftentimes over the troubles of life don't we and I think if we're not careful the majority of our prayers become about just the troubles of life instead of about the things that Jesus is praying here which is the glory you know finished work perfect timing restoration of all things that we'd be in the word in truth you know that we would have joy that we'd be sanctified all of these things or better things I would say for us to be praying about than the simple troubles of our life because here's the thing is that if God answers your prayer about the current troubles it will not be long before you have new troubles that's just life unfortunately look I like to think of it this way everybody you know either just came out of something really difficult is in something really difficult or is about to be in something really difficult Everybody you know is somewhere on that track of life. Everybody either just got out of it or in it or are about to be in it. That's just life. Okay? So when we 
when 90% of our prayers become about the troubles of life, guess what? The rest of your life, 90% of your prayers will be about the troubles of life because they're not going anywhere. Either your troubles or somebody you know is troubles, you're going to be praying about those things 90% of the time. I sound so depressing right now, I know, right? <laughs> but what I mean by all that is we can't get so caught up in these things that we think mean so much when they're just regular parts of life that everyone has to deal with. So ask for God's grace, ask for his strength, move forward, but learn to pray more in line with what really matters at the end of the day, the things that are spiritually significant. I mean, I know for myself, if I'm not careful, I will just start praying about all the things that I wish were different, right? Instead of start praying for God's glory, start praying for his perfect timing, praying for his finished work to be done. I want to learn from my own personal life, and, and all, for all of you, I hope you learn this too with me, is that we are learning to just pray in line with the heart of Jesus, pray in line with the will of God. And we're not so concerned with the difficulties uh, of our life. Now, I don't want to sound uh, unloving or not sensitive when people are going through really difficult things. Because the Bible does also tell us to weep with those who are weeping. Right? And there's nothing wrong with, with when things are really tough, just weeping before God. And we as a community weep with you. Okay, So I'm not saying we don't do that. There are things that are extremely difficult and deserve some attention. But a lot of our other prayers, if we're being honest with ourselves, aren't actually that big of a deal. We're just making a big deal because we're putting so much focus on them. Am I right? Um, so if every man, you know, every man and woman is not greater than their prayer life, let me ask you, what is your prayer life like? The truth is, only you and God know. Only you and God know what your prayer life is like. I don't know. You can tell me, and I still don't know, right? Because I'm not in your head. Because <laughs> prayer is a lot more than just what you pray on a Sunday or at community group. Prayer is, how are you thinking about God? What are you thinking towards God? What are you thinking towards other, or towards others? That process of thought in relationship to God is prayer. Right? It's not so much about like putting your hands and bowing your head. It's all of your thoughts about God, how you meditate on Scripture, what you think about Him, what you think about others and lie to Him. That's all part of prayer, too. So when we talk about praying without ceasing, it's a whole thing. It's meditation. It's, it's how you even think. Um, only you and God know. And I want to pray like Jesus. I want to learn to pray like Jesus. And I hope you guys do, too. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, help us in our weakness. Lord, we are weak. Our flesh is so weak. Of course, with temptations, but also just even the fact that we don't know how to pray as we ought. We don't know how to love the way we should love. 
we don't even know how to think about others and treat others properly. We're weak humans. We're sinful apart from your grace. But in your grace, Lord, you give us everything we need to live a life like you. Your grace is sufficient. We are weak, but you are strong. You know, we can do all things in Christ who strengthens us. So, Lord, we could look at our prayer lives. We could look at how we think about you and others. And we could very easily beat ourselves up. I pray we wouldn't do that right now, but that we would confess our weakness, confess our selfishness, and ask you for your grace, your strength. You know, as I, we were singing that Heart of Worship song, it has to be you who brings us back to the Heart of Worship. On our own, it's pretty easy to to be caught up in thinking about all the details of last week or next week instead of really worshiping you, instead of really praying in line with, with your will. Lord, and I, I believe that apart from your spirit right now, giving us passion, strengthening us, we can't even sing these worship songs the way they're meant to be sang. So Lord, I pray that right now each one of us takes a moment and we allow you to teach us how to sing these songs, teach us how to pray, teach us how to think of others and think of you, teach us how to properly ponder the most important things of life. In Jesus' name I pray.